0: The and welcome to a pirate podcast.
1: I'm Emily. And I'm Gemma. In this podcast, we are going to be talking about some badass female pirates. We are, of course, not promoting plundering and murdering, but sometimes a lady needs to do what a lady needs to do, plus you get a cool hat. Piracy is one of the oldest professions in the world, and whilst we tend to think of it as a career for men with eye patches, wooden legs, and parrots, Laura Sutduncum writes, quote, female pirates have fought alongside and, in some cases, in command of their male counterparts since ancient times.
0: We've vaguely looked at some female pirates in history before on the blog, but if female pirates are as prevalent as what we're kind of made to think in uh, Lois Hook Duncombe's books, plural now, isn't it?
1: They are really good books as well. Um, Why isn't there more of a focus on female pirates? There are two main reasons for this. The first, and arguably the biggest issue, is that piracy has always been recorded by and from the perspective of men, and therefore it is seen as a male pursuit. Look at the language we use. The sea and ships are referred to as she, uncharted islands are virgin territory for men to conquer, which means that admitting women sailed on and controlled it upsets the status quo. And the second issue is that there is little to no documented evidence supporting the existence of female pirates. Newspaper reports and court papers are very rare, and this is especially problematic for those women of low birth whose early lives were of no interest and therefore not recorded, which is a problem that's not unique just to female pirates. I mean, how many women have we looked at in podcasts or blogs that we've had no early history for because they are low-born. Yeah, and I guess as well with some of
0: it we only know about pirates after they've been caught as well, so like when they go through trials, and I guess no sea captain I want to say, but a non-pirate wants to say that they've been you know attacked and beaten by a woman I can't imagine that that really becomes a story that they want to be telling on the pub
1: yeah I should think it probably plays into it and also like this idea that women can't be as ruthless as men yeah I think that's kind of a
0: something that you see throughout history it's this idea that women are caregivers and that's kind of the role that we are stuck with and that we can't possibly be violent. We can't possibly be ambitious. You know that it is somehow ingrained in your DNA that you have to be the one at home, being the caretaker, rather than the one off at sea.
1: And also, um, like there was, there's a lot of, or there was a lot of superstition about women on boats. So I think that played into it as well. You know it's considered unlucky to have a woman on board your boat.
0: I think some people still read into that now. Okay, so what female pirate are we going to be kicking off with?
1: We're starting this podcast because you just stole my word. My bad. We're starting <laughs> really confusing. We're starting this podcast with Margaret Jordan who admittedly was not a pirate for long, nor was she a pirate in the way we're used to. Okay, so why are we starting with her then? Because she provides us with one of the few first-hand accounts from a female pirate. And this account comes from her trial in which she spoke in her own defence. Okay, tell us about her then. Margaret Croke was born in Ireland in the latter half of the 18th century. And unsurprisingly, we know nothing about her childhood or family until 1798 when she married Edward Jordan. Edward had a, quote, troubled spirit and a long criminal history. We don't know if Margaret knew Nervy's criminal past when they married, and theirs was a love match. And in the beginning, they were very happy. But having little success in Ireland, the couple, along with their daughters, moved to the United States. And according to Margaret, quote, that was the end of their happy marriage. They didn't remain in the US for long. We don't know why, but perhaps the anti-Irish prejudice played a part. But they soon moved to Canada, where they moved around a bit, taking on odd jobs before settling in Quebec, which at the time was a small seasonal fishing village. And after a brief attempt at farming, the Jordan family turned to fishing as a way to make a living. Not having the money to buy a boat outright, Edward travelled to Halifax and made a deal with the Termain family. They would give him the money for the ship, which he would fix. And then once it was up and running, he would use the money they made from the fish to pay for his half of the boat. With the repairs completed, the ship was given the name The Three Sisters and Edward set sail. Now, this is the point in the story where what happened next becomes debated. So, according to the Tremains, Edward returned to Halifax without the promised money. He claimed that he had some dried fish back home that, when sold, would cover his debt. They didn't believe him, and fearing that they wouldn't see him again if he left, they put their own captain, John Stairs, on the ship and had him accompany Edward back to get the money. When Edward arrived home, Margaret really wasn't happy with her husband, who had made their carious financial situation worse. Not one to admit responsibility. Edward was convinced that he had been cheated and that he was the owner of the three sisters, because he had done the work on it. As such, he had no interest in making amends with the Tremaines. Things then got worse. Remember the dried fish that was going to pay for his half of the ship? Well, it didn't. In fact, it covered only a fraction of what was owed, and Captain Stairs repossessed the three sisters on behalf of the Tremaine family, leaving the Jordan family shipless, penniless, and in massive debt. On the 10th of September 1809, Captain Stairs, three of his men and the entire Jordan family boarded the Three Sisters and set sail for Halifax. Why exactly the Jordan family joined the voyage is unclear. Stead later claimed he was taking them to Halifax as a favour so Edward could clear his debt and perhaps appeal to the Tremaines' sense of charity. Edward, however, believed his family were going to be thrown into debtors' prison. And having spent time in prison before, he wasn't going back and so came up with a deadly plan. Three days later, the Jordans launched a vicious attack on the crew. Armed with a gun and an axe, Edward killed the three crew members... Before Margaret hit Stairs over the head multiple times with a boat, Stairs then jumped overboard into the freezing sea. With the crew dead, the Jordans had captured the boat and turned pirate and planned to sail for Ireland. The Jordans quickly realised the flaw in their plan, as with no crew, they could not sail the ship and it was forced to dock in Newfoundland to pick up the crew. What they didn't know was that Stairs had survived. He'd managed to pry a hatch from the ship, which he'd used as a raft, and was picked up just three hours later by a passing ship. His rescuers took him to the US, where he recounted his story to the British consul. On the 20th of October, the governor of Nova Scotia, Sir George Provost, signed the arrest warrants for the arrest of Edward and Margaret, along with a reward of £100 for their capture, which was matched by the Tremaine family. With such a large reward, it wasn't long before the Jordan family were captured. During the trial, John Stairs recounted what happened, but Margaret had a different version. She claimed Edward was a jealous man and hated Stairs because he had previously given the Jordan children some new clothing. And on the day of the attack, he had found Margaret and Stairs alone in her cabin. Quote, just talking, not engaging in romantic behaviour and had flown into a murderous rage. Margaret claimed that... She was quote, so distraught about her husband's anger that she lost her senses and was no longer aware of her actions after this point. When asked if she had attacked stairs, she testified that quote, to the best of her knowledge, I did not, but she couldn't say for sure due to the emotional state. She went on to give an emotional speech, which detailed a history of abuse she suffered at Edward's hands. This was backed up by the new crew members which had been hired in Nova Scotia, who told of, quote, a woman trapped aboard a ship with her murderous husband. Margaret was constantly afraid for her life and the lives of her children. Whilst Edward was found guilty and sentenced to death, Margaret's story of a mother willing to go to any lengths to protect her children affected everyone in the court and she was acquitted and released. What happened to Margaret after the trial is unclear, but she is only one of a handful of women tried for piracy and acquitted largely because she was able to tell her own story. It's kind of funny that it's this idea that she's a woman trying
0: to do anything for her kids that has affected people's viewpoint. I mean, obviously, we don't know for sure what the situation was, nor will we ever know what the entire situation of the story was.
1: Yeah, I think with the modernised, you'd think, well, why didn't she hit her husband with boat hook? Mm-hmm. I like this case because it's not, when we think of piracy we tend to think of people like stealing gold and treasure from other ships this was just they stole the ships yeah the, the the ship yeah and and were planning to sail back to ireland but couldn't do it on their own yeah i never realized that you could become a pirate if you stole
0: a ship neither did i but i yeah. felt like it was something we should try <laughs> i get terribly seasick I would not be the first person that you need on that. It's definitely an interesting story. It's nice to hear kind of a first-person account because the ones that we've looked at previously are based on newspapers or hearsay or other people's accounts, not necessarily first accounts.
1: And with a lot of them, uh, like previous uh, ones we've looked at, it's very difficult to separate fact from fiction.
0: Definitely. Definitely.
1: Especially when stories get embellished upon. You kind of expect it, would be? Mm. It's kind of interesting that it hasn't been, really. It's just kind of, like, it's an everyday story. Isn't it? it's, it's a family that find themselves on hard times. Mm. Who are we looking at next? Next, we have Charlotte Badger, criminal pirate and the first white female settler of New Zealand. Ooh. Tell us her story, then. Charlotte was born in 1778 in Worcestershire, England. We know nothing about her childhood, but in 1796, she was 18 and convicted of a petty crime. Reports differ as to whether it was housebreaking or pickpocketing. Whatever the case, Charlotte was sentenced to transportation for life to a penal colony in New South South Wales, which is present day Australia. On the voyage she met Catherine Haggerty and the two formed a lifelong friendship during the six month journey from England to Australia. Now conditions on the ship were awful. For the entire six months they were at sea, prisoners were chained up below deck and a majority died before they even reached their destination. When Charlotte arrived at Port Jackson, she and Catherine were assigned to the Parameter Female Factory, a women's prison, where Charlotte gave birth to a daughter in 1806, who fathered the child isn't known, but it's possible that it was a guard. Charlotte's daughter stayed with her at the factory, which was standard practice for all children up to the age of four. After that, they were taken away from their mothers and sent to the orphan and infant schools, and in most cases were never reunited, which seems barbaric. But this wasn't to be the case for Charlotte. By the end of 1806, she and Catherine both had their sentences commuted. Whilst we don't know for sure why this happened, Laura Suk Duncombe suggests two possible reasons for this. Quote, because they demonstrated exceptional behaviour or, more likely, caught the eye of someone important at the prison, perhaps the father of Charlotte's child, and he wanted his daughter to grow up in a nicer place than the factory. Whatever the reason, Charlotte, her daughter and Catherine boarded the Venus, a 45-tonne brig, along with two male convicts, a guard and the crew. So although they were leaving prison, they faced another long and painful journey, with a difficult, unpleasant life waiting for them at the end of it, should they survive. None of the accounts match about what happens next, but some suggest that Captain Samuel Chase was a cruel man who regularly beat the women for his own amusement. However, other accounts claim that the women were friendly with the crew and, quote, regularly got into mischief, such as breaking into the whiskey stores. Sound like my kind of girls. Whilst other accounts claim that both Catherine and Charlotte Vett developed romantic relationships whilst on board, Catherine with the first mate, and Charlotte with a male convict. Now, to quote Laura Sook again, she suggests that, quote, the truth of what happened on board is possibly a mix of all the stories, but will likely never be known for sure. Whatever the truth, at some point, the women reached breaking point and decided to mutiny, which was punishable by death, something they would have known when they made their plans. But by this point, perhaps they no longer cared if they lived or died. What happened in their mutiny then? Well, we know that on the 16th of June, Captain Chase docked the Venus in what is now Tasmania. But what happened next is disputed. He either returned from the town to find the ship sailing away, or he was on board when the mutiny happened and was flogged by Catherine. He claimed that the mutiny was started by Benjamin Kelly the first mate, who Catherine was supposedly in a relationship with. However events unfolded, on the 17th of June, the Venus left port with 10 people on board, but Captain Chase was not one of them. By stealing the ship and the cargo on board, Charlotte and the rest of the mutineers became pirates, even if not the traditional idea we have of pirates. Part of the cargo was the people themselves, who had been paid for by their new employers, so this is an instance where the treasure stolen by pirates was, in fact, themselves. I mean, that's kind of a weird
0: concept, that you're stealing treasure, which is, in fact, your own self. Right? Okay. What happened next?
1: The men on the ship got together and decided that the women and child were not needed and were to leave the ship. How the women felt about this isn't known. When they reached Rangy Howe Bay... The men built them a basic shelter before sailing up on the Venus, leaving them behind. How the women made their way in the new environment is a mystery, but they stayed together until Catherine's death. What happened to Charlotte is unknown, but in 1826, the Lafayette, an American ship, landed in Sydney and the crew recounted a tale they had learned from the native people in Tonga. Quote, an enormously fat woman and a young girl had come through Tonga, the woman spoke fluent Maui and told the amazed Tongans about her adventures around the world. She eventually left aboard an American whaler and sailed off to America with her daughter. Sadly, we'll never know whether this was Catherine, but it seems likely. It seems insane that they were just left. And the men then... did build them a shelter before oh, they sailed off. How helpful of them. On an island filled with poisonous things and yeah. snakes and yeah. I mean, they should really have been thanking them. Men just can't do enough for
0: us. They really can't. I'm sure that they mansplained something before they left because, you know, they mm-hmm. just can't
1: help themselves. I think her case always sticks out for me because I mean, she was sent, like, sentenced to transportation, possibly just for pickpocketing. Yeah. It seems such a might, mind- and, and at 18, you know. Everyone was
0: sentenced. It was like the best way that government found to fix things was just to get rid of them not any ideas of like rehabilitating them or having a viewpoint on what was classed as a bad crime and not really a bad crime
1: imagine having your child until they're four years old and then having them taken away from you yeah or knowing
0: that you were going to have them for four years and that was
1: it yeah, that's just horrific. Guessing maybe some were adopted. Can you imagine that as a four-year-old? Like Some of my
0: earliest memories are I'm four.
1: Also, considering this was a female prison. Yeah. Children were being born and the only men around were guards. Yeah. It,
0: it, it, yeah. Too many problems with that. Yes before we get more ranty, who are we looking at next?
1: Next, we have Rachel Wall, the first American born female pirate who had a penchant for crime and killing. Okay, tell us about Rachel. Rachel Schmidt was born in 1760 and raised in Pennsylvania. She was one of six children. Her parents were farmers and devout Presbyterians. Rachel ran away from home and joined up with her secret boyfriend, George Wall in Philadelphia. Now, how the two met isn't known, but he convinced her to run away with him and, quote, start their life together in the big city, far from the drudgery of farm work. From Philadelphia, they went to New York City and then to Boston, where Rachel got a job as a maid and George as a fisherman. George was not a good fisherman. He was often too drunk to make it into work. There is even a story about him and his friends throwing a party so wild, they failed to realise that the fishing boat they were supposed to crew had left without them. This led to him losing his job, and no job meant no money for food. So, with his spare time, George came up with a plan. That would mean he would never have to work for someone else ever again. Piracy. It's logical, right? Having told Rachel his plan, she agreed to go along with it. Now, this wasn't as crazy as it might sound. He and his friends had all served as privateers during the Revolutionary War. Because they had worked as fishermen, they had sailing skills, and his friend even had a boat he could borrow. His plan was simple. When a storm was brewing, they would sail sail to the island of Shoals and ride out the worst of the storm in the shelter of the Isles. Then, when the weather turned, they would sail into the path of the shipping lanes, they would rig the sails incorrectly and fly a distress flag. Rachel would stand on the deck, weeping and calling out for help. Then, then, when a ship approached to offer aid, the rest of the crew would attack. The crew of the rescue ship would be killed, their bodies thrown overboard, their ship looted and then sunk. After all, ships were lost at sea all of the time. And providing they took some fish home, George and Rachel believed they wouldn't be caught. I mean, it sounds like a good plan. They've got all the steps
0: out, you know. You know, it sounds perfect, but um, wouldn't they, uh, you know, need a storm for it to, to work? <laughs> That's quite important.
1: Yes, but fortunately for them, storms were quite common in New England. So it was full steam ahead, and the first foray into piracy earned them around $10,000 in today's money. Over the years, they honed their routine, murdering an estimated 24 people, looting 12 ships, and plundering thousands of dollars' worth of merchandise and cash. However, in September 1782, their luck ran out, and whilst on their way to commit another robbery, the storm took a turn for the worse and all the members of the crew except Rachel were swept overboard and drowned. Rachel was once more on deck calling for help only this time her distress was very real. Eventually she was rescued and taken back to Boston where the now widowed Rachel got a job as a maid. Although done with piracy Rachel didn't give up her life of crime and amassed quote a sizable amount of loot from robbing ships whilst they were at anchor in the port, Although never caught for these crimes in 1789 she was arrested for stealing a woman's bonnet worth seven shillings and for this she was sentenced to death. Though she continued to plead her innocence for this crime she gave her last confession in which she confessed to her long career as a pirate and thief and even exonerated another woman who was serving time for a crime that she had committed. Rachel was executed on the 7th of October 1789 making her the last woman to be hung by the state of Massachusetts. It's kind of funny that she got caught for something
0: that had, like, nothing to do with the worst things that she's done. Yeah. It's very um, Al Capone-ish.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I guess it is. It's such a simple plan, though. It really, really is. I mean, by rights, it's quite foolproof. It is also the irony of the fact that Her her entire crew was wiped out by a storm. It's just like "Mm." Because
0: they were going to use the storm to get their victims.
1: Yeah, I'm surprised their death count was said to be 24 which seems quite low for the um, amount of loot they amassed not that I'm wishing it was higher I think I just expected it to be higher yeah I mean I would
0: have expected more but then again I don't know how many people crew a boat or crewed because obviously you wouldn't probably need as many now as what you would have in
1: 1789
0: exactly or maybe that's just her toll it's
1: difficult isn't it
0: yeah I mean you know the plan i mean she gets an a plus for the plan
1: and her acting skills
0: definitely she should have gone onto stage i can just see her now doing the really dramatic pose of like hand on head like help me whoa, it's me please help me i appear to have put my sails on wrong i've got all the way out here but the sails are wrong <laughs>
1: The thing is, nobody, it, it's amazing how many people would have offered aid, aid without thinking twice. Yeah. See, my brain would have been like, no.
0: My brain would have been, but how have you got this far?
1: Yeah. I'm going to send one man over to help you. If he comes back alive, I'll think about it. Yeah. But do you think people let the guard down because it was a woman? I think like that if was the whole plan. Been, yeah, was based this is what I'm that. saying. It, it's amazing how much a distressed woman can distract people, can yeah. distract
0: men. And it's been used time and time again and will probably continue to be used. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: mm. Right,
0: who is next on your list?
1: Next we have Lady Mary Kilgrew who amassed so much power that it took the intervention of Queen Elizabeth I to take her down. I mean that's that is a name. Tell us about her then. Mary Wolfston was born at Wolfston Hall in Suffolk somewhere in the early 1500s. Her father Philip was known as the Gentleman Pirate. Henry VIII's break with Rome caused England to fall out of favour with much of Europe, which caused trade difficulties, and this led to piracy being used to gain suppliers. So wealthy landowners who lived by the sea, such as Philip, found themselves in a position to, quote, offer seafaring pirates a place to land, money to bribe officials, and help in selling their off-the-book cargo, all for a price, of course. After a childhood living in a pirating household, Mary got her own when she married Sir John Kilgrew, the Fourth, in the late 1550s or early 1560s. John had large amounts of land and he was politically connected. He was serving as the Vice Admiral of Cornwall and Royal Governor of Pendennis Castle, Lord of Arnwick Manor, related to the Queen's Minister William Cecil, and by the time of their wedding, his pirating career was well and truly underway. A perfect match for the daughter of the gentleman pirate. Whether they were actually in love or not, whether they were in love or not is unknown, but they both shared a love for piracy. Along with his mother, Lady Elizabeth Kilgroup, they ran their business from Anwick Manor. And many sources get Mary and Elizabeth confused. And it's easy to see why, as they shared the same surname and were both involved in the business. However, Mary was much more active than her mother-in-law. So easy to confuse. You almost did it too.
0: I did. <laughs> I must accuse him of something unspeakable. Okay, so what did they actually do? Like, did they go off to sea and do the pirate routine that we would expect? The, Were like, you making week...
1: stabbing motions then? I think so.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> or would they do something else? No, they used their home as a base of operations. So what they actually did was provide ships to those who needed them, offer loans to bribe officials, settle disputes within crews, and assess stolen goods to make sure they were valued correctly before they were sold. For all of these services, the Kilgrews, quote, collected a hefty fee and the Queen herself received a share of it. Um, Wasn't uh,
0: piracy illegal, though? It seems quite um, above board.
1: Yes, but Elizabeth relied on piracy much the same way her father had. As Laura Sipton writes, piracy brought home the money that was the lifeblood of the fledgling British Empire. So whilst they didn't have an official agreement with the Queen, she looked the other way as pirates regularly sailed in and out of Falmouth Harbour, where the Kilgrews lived. Had it not been for one of Lady Mary's wild adventures, life of the Kilgrew family might have gone on unchanged for many years. Um, What did she do? First, I need to explain what the Hanseatic League was. So the Hanseatic League was a small group of merchant navy ships and ports, which grew to be one of the largest anti-piracy forces on the water. Stretching from the North Sea to the Baltic Sea, it was made up of guilds and towns, which functioned almost like a union, protecting, quote, the economic and diplomatic rights of its members in the ports and towns that made up the League. Although it wasn't really an official stay, at its height in the 1400s, it held a lot of power. So, in 1582, a Hanseatic ship sailed into Falmouth Harbour, where an unexpected storm forced it to drop anchor. Two men, Philip D'Orzo and Jean de D'Chiris, were sent ashore to find food and a place for the crew to stay whilst the storm passed. They found their way to Anwick Manor, where Lady Mary greeted them and helped them find rooms for the crew at a nearby guest house. Having no reason not to trust her, they left just a few men behind to guard the ship, while the rest went ashore to wait out in the storm. Little did they know that Lady Mary had plans for their ship, deciding she would take the ship for herself. Having gathered her crew, which included two of her household servants, they sailed out to the ship, and after looting the treasure on board, some of Mary's crew then took the ship to Ireland, where it could be hidden. When the storm cleared, the two men returned to the harbour, only to find that their ship was gone. They filed a claim with the Commission Against Piracy in Cornwall and were, quote, confident the agency would do its best to stop the ruthless pirates and recover their ship. Their confidences were short-lived when they discovered the commission was overseen by none other than John Kilgrew, Mary's son. Now, I'm sure you will be shocked to learn that despite a thorough investigation, No culprit was discovered and there was no sign of the ship. Not willing to give up, they persevered with their claim until it ended up on the desk of Queen Elizabeth I. As you can imagine, this left the Queen in a difficult spot because this wasn't just looking the other way whilst bribes were paid. This was stealing from an ally in peacetime. Furthermore, she could not just ignore the evidence against the Kilgrews, nor the fact that Lady Mary's son had presided over the initial investigation. Doing so could lead to hostilities with the powerful Hanseatic League, but on the other hand, moving against the Kilgrews would mean losing a valuable income stream. So, what did she do? She had Lady Mary and the two household servants named Hawkins and Kendall arrested and placed on trial for piracy. All three were found guilty and sentenced to hang for their crimes. Both servants were hanged, but Lady Mary received a pardon from on high, possibly from the Queen herself, but we don't know. And in 1585, Mary was sentenced to time served and released. She returned home a free woman and resumed life as a gentlewoman until her death in 1587. Such a weird way of doing it, but I can understand why she did it that way. Cleverly, she's the one that gave it. the pardoning.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's like, well, I, I punished her but also didn't really punish her at all no just let the commoners die of course because they aren't as important
1: I admit one thing i hadn't considered was how trade was impacted by the reformation and the dissolution and the monasteries and the break with rome but i guess yeah. it makes sense because so much of europe was catholic and then we were like no i think not so of course we're going to be on the blacklist. Yeah. And so it makes sense that they had to bring stuff in another way and piracy ticks those boxes. So basically state sanctioned piracy. I know that um, she quite often sent
0: them out against the Spanish and in a way, cause obviously Spain was always trying to invade us or had some plan on the table to invade England at all times. Um so she used to send them out, but it'd be like, oh well, I haven't sent them. No. It's not me. I'm just
1: She's a feeble a woman.
0: I'm a feeble I couldn't possibly control these pirates. So she used to send them off to basically raid on purpose. Oops. Whilst keeping because it wasn't sanctioned by the state, it wasn't technically something
1: that they could retaliate for. I think it is first is not as celebrated as she should be for her accomplishments. I think the thing is the Tudors kind of get lost in Henry VIII's orbit. Yeah.
0: I I think Elizabeth definitely was juggling a lot. She was trying to juggle everything that had happened during her sister's reign with, you know, basically burning Protestants. She was trying to struggle to find a a, a middle ground for everyone religiously and bring, deal with all these people that were coming at England
1: because they weren't part of the Catholic Church anymore and between Henry and Mary the coffers were quite empty mm-hmm. I mean by the end of Elizabeth first reign the coffers were full again so yeah. she, she dealt with all of that
0: and the Armada and stuff all while dealing with the fact that everyone taught, was telling her that she had to get married
1: yeah and I mean it wasn't just like spain that had issues she was dealing with scotland um she was dealing with rebellions within england itself because people didn't want an unmarried queen on the throne especially Mm -hmm. you know the fallout of who her mother was so but i just love this idea of like pirates pulling up to a big manor house and this like noble woman going out and just settling disputes between two unwashed pirates yeah like no no no. back his leg yeah you must listen to me and just valuing the loot. Do you think she had like a
0: special hat that she went out and wore? Like oh, this is my pirate. I hope so. My pirate dealing hat.
1: I wore it on my special days when the pirates come in. She must have worn trousers because I can't imagine a big Tudor dress would have been easy getting on and off ships. No. I just love the fact she invited them in for a cup of tea all the while planning to rob them. It's <laughs> <That's> so mottish. <laughs> come have a drink while I steal your ship. Yeah basically gave them a bit of tea and a biscuit and then robbed them and then got my son to cover it up she knew what she was doing she was on it
0: who's next i'm not sure if they can top that her <laughs>
1: our last one <laughs> so next we have maria cobham who unlike those who killed in self-defense or out of necessity seemed to actually enjoy the killing so a warning for blood and gore probably best that you've saved this one for last then tell us about her then she was born maria lindsay in england sometime around 1700 and that's about all we know of of her childhood. The next thing we know about her was that she worked as a prostitute in Plymouth Harbour and it was there that she met the pirate, Eric Cobham. Eric had stopped in Plymouth, fresh from a voyage where he had stolen thousands of pounds worth of gold and the two met in a tavern. And rather than be repulsed by his stories of thievery, murder and deceit, they impressed her so much that when his ship left the harbour a few days later, she was with him. Now, as we said, women were not welcome on ships and Eric's was no exception with some of the crew demanding that she be left at the next port. Maria didn't like this, and decided that if she couldn't make them like her, she would make them fear her, and as such, quote, quickly became the cruelest pirate of them all. Few pirate stories are without violence, but stories of Maria are less about the treasure she looted, but her love of torture and murder. Among her favourite methods were stabbing people in the heart, tying them to the mast and using them as target practice, sewing living victims into bags and then throwing them overboard. One of the most famous stories about her comes from the captain of the Altona. Maria decided that she really liked the captain's uniform, so in front of his crew and her own, she made him strip naked before shooting him and two members of his crew, just, just for fun. She then dressed herself in his uniform and declared herself, quote, first officer of the pirates. With this, she wore the uniform at all times and even had copies made so that she was never without a spare. It's somewhat ironic that just as Maria was gaining her power, Eric was tiring of his own and decided that 20 years at sea was enough for him. He wanted to retire and become respectable. Maria wasn't too keen on her husband's idea but eventually agreed on the condition that they live in a big house by the water. To do this, they needed one last big score. This came with the taking of the Middleton. Of course, to get away with it, they would have to leave none of the Middleton's crew alive. After all, dead men tell no tales. How the crew were killed is debated. One account states that Maria locked the entire crew in chains and threw them overboard whilst they were still alive. Whilst another version tells that they suffered being drawn out and painful deaths after after Maria poisoned them. Either way, none survived. I mean, we do know that poison is a woman's weapon, so... Take from that what you will. With the money they made from the Middleton and the sale of their own ship, they were able to purchase Maria's dream home in Lehar, a busy port where the English Channel and the River Sign meet and resolve to enjoy their new life on land. Did they actually get to enjoy this new life? Well, Eric did. He became involved in local politics, became a magistrate and seemed to enjoy life as a law-abiding citizen. Maria, however, did not adjust well and became somewhat of a recluse. After years of self-imposed exile, Maria passed away, but how she met her end is debated. One account suggests that she took her own life, either with an overdose or by jumping from the cliff because she was overcome with guilt. Other accounts suggest that she might have tripped whilst walking the cliffs, or perhaps run off with another. However, Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates claimed that she was murdered by Eric, who had become fed up with her behaviour. But that is just speculation, and we will likely never know. I mean... We like a good mystery. We do. I mean, the only reason we know about this story is because Eric recounted it. Yeah. Um, But then his children didn't want it to come out. So the accounts disappeared. Mm. So somewhere there's a record of all of their seafaring adventures that maybe one day will come to light. Yeah.
0: I love that they went from that to him going into local politics. I
1: mean, politicians. She was not going to be treated badly by the men So she made them fear her. She was sadistic Or stories suggest that she was sadistic, obviously Yeah It seems definitely. odd that she went from sewing people in bags And throwing them overboard while they were still alive To filled with remorse that she jumped off a cliff
0: Yeah, that doesn't really ring like that would be the case I like to think she ran off with somebody And
1: went back to her life at sea Or her husband threw off a cliff this idea that she just tripped while walking and stumbled off. I know it shouldn't, but it kind of makes me chuckle. I know, because
0: that is just not the end that you'd expect. That's how I'm
1: going to die, <laughs> let's be honest.
0: If she was that clumsy, she would have tripped and fallen off a boat before now. Because we know that would have happened to
1: us. This is true. So these are just some of the women who have taken to the season and the title pirates. And as this is one of our favourite topics, you can expect there to be another pirate podcast in the future. We know we said we were taking August off, but as this is being released on my birthday, we wanted to give you a gift and, you know, it's never a chore to talk about pirates. So we hope you enjoyed. We will be back next month with podcasts and posts and all of the usual content. But until then, take care of yourselves and each other.